first reading this morning is from Matthew 15, the first nine verses, where it's talking about traditions and commandments. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We're back this week. We're, going to, we're in our second week. If you were here with us last week, we started a new series on the church, what the church is and what it does and what we're supposed to be. And we hit kind of big ideas last week about just what the church is in general. And what we talked about is the very, very basic, basic is That the church is made up of all believers in Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become part of the church. And we talked about because that is true, because it's based on your faith, you get the Holy Spirit when you become a believer, that there is a universal church. And we talked about how all churches in the world that hold to that fundamental faith of faith alone in Jesus Christ for what he's done for you are part of the church. And not only that, we talked about that really when you look at biblically that the church is not just all the people on earth, but it's all believers of all time. So we talked about how the church can be invisible and visible because it includes those that have gone before, and that's all part of the church. And then we talked about how when we meet together in a local assembly like this assembly this morning, that we are a local church. Even though we are part of the universal church and we are part of the invisible and visible church, we are also part of the local church because we meet together. And then we looked at very kind of big idea that would include the universal church, all of the church last week when we talked about who we are as a church. And we looked at first Peter chapter two and what first what Peter says in first Peter chapter two is that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And he talks about how we are now uh, our bodies are now the temple of God and together that we're being built up into a spiritual house. And then he says, and the reason all that is true is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of the darkness. And that's what we talked about last week. The big idea of who we are as a church that's made up of believers and what we do. We proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of the darkness. And what we talked about, what that looks like is we go into the world and we live differently than the world. We're not supposed to withdraw, that we're supposed to be in the world, but not of it, showing a better way. Showing what it looks like to live under God and what he's told us. And that's what we hit on last week. Now, the next four weeks, including this week, what we're going to talk about is how we do that. What that looks like in the church. How we proclaim the excellencies. And what we're going to look at today, and these are so closely related, is what we're going to look at today is what true worship is. Because when we talk about proclaiming the excellencies of him, that includes our worship. And, And to be a true church, to really get what the church is, 
It's a big piece. It's very important that we know and we understand what true worship is. So what we're going to look at today is what that what Jesus says that is. And if you want to turn with me, we're going to be in John chapter four this morning. That's where we're going to be for, for our time. And we're going to see what Jesus says about worship. We're going to look at what he says about it. And uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. And just just to give you a heads up where we're going next week, what we'll do is then we'll, today we're kind of looking at the, the base foundation, the theological foundation of what true worship is. Next week, we'll look at what this assembly, what local worship is supposed to look like, what the Bible says should be taking place in our local assembly on Sunday mornings or when we gather together to worship. So we'll hit on that next week. And then the last two weeks, we'll talk about how we nurture and love one another, how we minister to each other. And then the last week, we'll talk about how we minister to our world through word and deed. So that's kind of where we're going. And all of these hit on what it means to be the church. But today we're going to look at this idea of true worship and what Jesus says. So we're going to be in John chapter four, and we're really going to focus on verses 16 to 26. But I'm going to read for us this morning as we begin verse one through 26. And the reason we're going to do that is Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of Samaria. And if we jump in at verse 16, we're right in the middle of the conversation. So we're going to read, read from verse 1 so we get the context. And then we'll go back and we're really going to spend our time in verses 16 to 26. But if you'll follow along with me, if you have your Bibles or listen, if you don't, this is starting in John chapter 4, verse 1. And it says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, I'm sorry, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed from Galilee, and, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, now, now near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I might not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one now you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming and he he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at this, this passage and what it says about worship. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel of John and what it teaches us. We thank you for this uh, conversation, your very words to this woman, and what it, what it can show us about our worship and what true worship is. And coming to you with the right heart and in the right way, I pray that we would do that, that we would become a church that is so caught up in what you've done for us, that our worship is always and completely, totally focused on you. Pray that your Holy Spirit would come and open our eyes to understand and see your word. And I pray that you would convict us where we need convicting and comfort us where we need comforting. We thank you for all you've done for it. And we pray us, pray this in Jesus name. Amen. As we begin and we talk about true worship, three things I want us to look at on what what Jesus says to the woman at the well this morning. First, what it's not, what worship is not. Secondly, what it is. And third, why does it matter? So what it's not, what it is, why does it matter? So first, what it's not. And before I even hit to that, I want to just give you background here on what we're talking about because I'm skimming over a bunch of really, really great verses. And hopefully we'll come back at some point and hit on all this in John because there's so much great teaching here. But we're going right to verse 16. But I want us to at least get the setting of what's happening because what's happening here is Jesus has gone into Samaria where Jews don't normally stop. They don't spend a lot of time there. At the time, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. John tells us that in verse 9. He said, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus goes right into the heart of Samaria and he stops and he, and he strikes up this conversation with this woman. And there's a lot going on here, but there's, there's the, the racial tensions between Jews and Samaritans. There's also the fact that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi and he's talking to a woman, which normally wouldn't be taking place either. And then you've got this woman, and we start to learn from the context here as Jesus talks with her. She's, to put it politely, she's a mess. She's a a woman who, as Jesus rightly tells her, she's been married five times and she's working on number six. And what we get here is Jesus having, and the reason I point this out, um, is here's Jesus having this conversation about what true worship means. And he's having it with a Samaritan woman, a woman that the society would say shouldn't even be talking to. And this woman that's got all kinds of problems. And here it's not taking place in the temple. It's not with the religious leaders. It's not with whatever. It's with this lady in the middle of wherever by this uh, well, in the middle of the day when he's tired. And and the reason I say that and the reason I point that out is, is Jesus is seeking true worshipers in real life. This doesn't just happen off on the church, in the church, or wherever, but it happens in real life with a lady who's dealing with real things, and that's who he's talking about. And we're going to see, as he says later, and he tells us that, that, that he is seeking true worshipers. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or what happened, that Jesus is seeking true worshipers from this day forward. So wherever you've had in the past, listen to his words and take them to heart today. So just that's, that's kind of background of, of where we are. So, so we jump into the middle of this conversation and we're going to ask what worship is not. And Jesus is carrying on this conversation with this lady. And she asks them some things and they're talking about this living water. And she's totally missing what he's talking about. Jesus is talking in spiritual terms. She's talking in physical terms. He's saying, I could give you living water. And she's 
where's your bucket? You know, she doesn't get it at all. She's totally missing what he's saying. And then he kind of abruptly changes and he says, go call your husband. And the lady says, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus reveals very intimate details about her. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands and you're working on the sixth one. And all of a sudden, this kind of shocks her. And it's interesting. Commentators kind of disagree on what's happening here, why she says she quickly changes the subject. Well, what about worship? That's that's basically what she says. She asks a very pointed question about an area of contention between the Samaritans and the Jews. Where are we supposed to worship? Now, we can't say for sure why she does that. Is it just I like to think it's just because she sees who Jesus is, or she's got an idea, she's thinking this guy could be a prophet. He knows something, so I'm going to ask him this serious question. Some commentators say she says it to change the subject from her own personal sin. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about theology, which is easy to do. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about theology in general terms, which we often do, and we do do that a lot. But So Jesus cuts right to it, and she asks this very pointed question about where we're supposed to worship. You see, the Samaritans only held to the first five books of the Bible. And they believed that worship was to take place on Mount Gerizim. It's in the middle of Samaria. And they said, that's the place. And the Jews believed it was in the temple in Jerusalem. So that's what she asked. So which is it? You seem to be a wise man. Maybe you're a prophet. What do you say, Jesus? And she asked them. And what Jesus tells us first, what we're going to see in verse 21 is what it is not. Because what he says in verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And Jesus says a whole lot right there in that, excuse me, in that one verse. Because what he says is true worship is not about external places. It's not about whether it's on a mountain or it's in Jerusalem. And what Jesus says is the hour is coming. And you may not catch this. I was reading this week and in John's gospel when he talks about the hour. He says that a lot. The hour is coming. It's talking and pointing to Jesus' crucifixion. So we see here Jesus is saying that the hour is coming. The time is coming when it's not going to matter where. External things aren't so important. And that's what we hit on last week. What Jesus is saying here is exactly what we talked about last week. Because Peter says now, after Christ, after he's come and what he's done, you become the temple. The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you, and it's no longer about external things. And that's what Jesus is telling her. It's not about the external stuff that matters. And as I read this, I thought this question could easily be asked of Jesus today. We could be asking Jesus today, well, Jesus, uh, what time should we have Sunday morning worship? Or what should we wear to church? Or what song should we sing? Or how should it look? Or what's... You know, what liturgy should we have? What should be the order of our service? What should those things be? And I think, to be honest, Jesus' answer would be the same thing as it is right here. The hour has come that it doesn't matter so much about the external things. And that's not to say those things are bad or they're wrong, but they're not the focus. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing isn't if you're on a mountain in Samaria or you're in the temple in Jerusalem. He's saying it's something much greater than that, and it's about a heart issue. Um, this goes all the way back. You see it. You saw it in our reading this morning. You know, God came and set up a particular worship with Israel way back, but he put them, he called them out. He, he saves them. Uh, let's go all the way back to Exodus, right? God saves the Israelites from the Egyptians, And what he said was the very beginning with Pharaoh was, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. This is in Exodus seven so that they may go worship me in the desert. 
So all the way back, this was always the plan. God was always seeking true worshipers. He was always seeking a relationship with us. And it was always about a heart issue. Now, he gave very specific examples and things they were supposed to do in the Old Testament because he was revealing who he is. And that's true. And there were certain things, but it was always about a right heart issue. Always. And you see that in our first reading this morning. If you were listening and you heard our first reading, Jesus talking to the Pharisees and they're asking very pointed questions about this rule and that rule and what you're supposed to do. And Jesus says, you profess me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. The external stuff and the rules and the where and all that is not really what I'm after. I'm after your heart issue. And that really takes us right to what it is. What it's not is the external stuff. It's not supposed to be about the place and all those things, but it goes to the internal part. So what's the internal part that we're supposed to go to? Look at verses 22 through 24, because this gets us right to what it is. It's not about. uh, and, And by the way, just so we're clear, the external things that were in the Old Testament were there to point to an internal reality. That makes sense. We talked about that a lot in Galatians about what circumcision means. Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward reality. And that's kind of what we're getting at. The outward stuff is pointing to something far greater. And when we make it all about the outward stuff, we miss it. And that's what he's saying here. Look at verses 22 through 24 to see what it really is. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he goes right to a couple of things he says here about what true worship looks like. And what he tells us is it is to worship God. True worship is to worship him in spirit and in truth. We're going to take truth first, and then we'll take spirit, and then we're going to put them together and get the full picture. But to get the truth first, I want you to see what he's saying to this woman in context as he's talking to her. Because what he says to her, he says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know and we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And the context here and what's coming out in this conversation is that Jesus is the Messiah. We read that, right? We get down to verse 26 and she's just asked, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. And you even see that before in their conversation before, because if you look up at verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is saying to her, you don't even understand who you're talking to right now. And he's explaining to her and he's teaching her. And what we're seeing is salvation comes from the Jews because the Messiah comes from the Jews. Right. God chose a people to make his plan known. He chose Israel out of all the nations so that he could show who he is and make his plan known so that he could draw us back to him. Right. Which is goes all the way back to Genesis three. It goes to Genesis 12, Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to bless the world through your seed, which the whole plan was. It was always about bringing us back, bringing us back to a relationship with him. And that's what he's talking about in verse 22 when he says salvation comes from the Jews. So the first part of worshiping him in spirit and in truth is we have to worship God in the way that he has said. The way he has revealed in his word, which is through Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying. The Messiah is coming and it's me. By the way, that's me. That's what he says. He tells them 
And what he's getting at is there's only one way to come to God. And he says it right here. You even get it in the context here in that verse 10. If you knew who you were talking to, then in verse 14, he says, I would give you water that would spring up, welling up to eternal life. He says, if you come to me and you get what I have, that's how you get eternal life. I mean, Jesus is making it very clear as you work through this. And what he's saying is to worship in truth, you have to come through me. You have to come through the Messiah. You have to come through God's chosen way, the way God has revealed, which is Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, a lot of times when you say that, if you say that to a friend or or maybe you have questions about this as you sit here this morning and you hear that people don't like to hear that. It's very exclusive. Don't don't tell me that Jesus is the only way. People get very frustrated. Well, Jesus was a good guy, and he was a good teacher, and he was a good man. But don't tell me he's the only way. Because if you tell somebody the only true way you can worship God is through Jesus, that's very off-putting to some people. And they'll say, well, wait a second, that's so exclusive. How can you say that? And I want you to see that when someone tells you Jesus is just a good teacher, you can take them right here to this passage and have them look at what Jesus says about himself. Because he's not saying I'm just a good teacher that's telling you some things to follow. He says, I'm it. You come to me. I'm the one that gives you the water. I'm the one that gives you eternal life. You come through me. If this isn't clear enough, go to John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't have that Jesus is a good teacher and there's other ways based on Jesus' teaching. Because he is so absolutely crystal clear on you come through the Father through me and nothing else. Now, people will say, oh, that's, they get real frustrated with that, and that's so exclusive, and how can you say that? But I want you to think, when the, what, what the kind of common objection today is, you can't say that. There's other ways that are equally valid, or we can't really know, so don't anybody say that. Nobody make that statement. But I want you to think, if you've ever had that objection, or you hear that, and you think, yeah, that does sound kind of good, that's a little more inclusive, that's kind of nice... That statement in and of itself is a very, very exclusive statement. It's a very particular belief. And the reason I say that is if somebody says, no, well, there's all ways. There's lots of ways you can come to God, and that's okay. And let's just, that is saying, I have some knowledge about who God is and the way he allows people to come to him. Do you see that? If I say, oh, there's lots of ways to come to God, I'm making a very exclusive statement about who God is. And the reason I point that out is because you hear those objections a lot and it becomes very common sense in our society. And people go, oh, well, this would be so much better if we're more inclusive and we don't make statements like that. And then they make the statement that God will let you come however you want, which is in itself a very exclusive statement. You see that? And the reason I point that out is because you'll hear that so often, but it doesn't hold up under its own argument. It falls apart real quickly. And I don't mean to get on a rabbit trail here, but I want you to at least see that that's the case. So when you hear that, or maybe you've had that, look at your own views and why you're saying what you're saying. Because you're, you're holding to a very specific belief if you say that. All that to say, the first point here of how we come through true worship is how God has told us, which is in accord with his word and what Jesus said and what he did. So to have true worship, you have to come in the way that God has told us. And as believers, as Jesus said, it's through his word. And it's, that points us directly to Jesus Christ and nothing else. So to worship him in truth, it has to be by the way he told us. The second part of that verse, though, he says we're supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? 
We've got the truth part. What does the spirit part mean? What does that mean to worship him by spirit? In the context here, Jesus is making a comparison between external things, mountain in Samaria, temple in Jerusalem, versus internal things. And what he's talking about, spirit, he's talking about your heart issue, your inner being, who you are. And that's what he's saying. To worship him in spirit and in truth is it has to be an inward reality. It has to mean something to you. It's not just, you could say, well, I worship in truth alone. I know head knowledge. God sent Jesus. He died for me. Yes, I believe that. I should go worship because that's the case. And it's all an intellectual thing and there's no heart touch. It hasn't touched your heart. That's not worshiping in spirit and truth. And I'll give you a check on how that can be. When you come and you assemble with believers to sing praises to the God of the universe who saved you by his grace and you're bored, you are not worshiping in spirit and in truth. If you're checking your watch or you think, man, that's one too many songs, I've got things to do, that is not worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because when your heart is touched by what he's done for you, you don't just go, ah, oh, you know, I've got other things to do. You don't have other things. This, this is it. And I'm not talking about my preaching or being here, but I'm talking about worshiping the Savior of the world. There's nothing greater. There's nothing greater use of our time. And when we don't get that, we're missing what true worship is, and we're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. And when you think about what it means to worship in spirit, it means having a, uh, an emotion. And it doesn't mean, you don't have to be like me. <laughs> you, you don't have to weep every time you talk about the cross and be, uh, you know, all, all over the place. Because we're different. People are different in different ways. It doesn't mean you have to be tear up and some people don't cry. And that's not it. But it, but it is that it's touched your heart. I was trying to think of a good example of, of, uh, of that in my life. When you think about it, and I thought about when I got married, and you're standing at, you know, standing at the front of the church waiting on my wife, and of course I was fighting back tears, no, no surprise. But, and I was thinking you know, how much your heart, has, how much you love her, and you're so excited, and, and I kept thinking, how did I pull this off? I don't know if you ever had that. And there's a lot of people that are laughing because... That's, that's all the guys that are in the same boat as I am. You go, I don't, I don't really know how I did that. But, but that, that feeling, that welling up, that, that emotion for that. And, 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 or uh, when I go in at night, I go in at night when my boys are asleep and I pray for them as they're sleeping. And you're just overwhelmed with how much you love them and you care for them. And that's just a taste of what true worship of spirit should be. That love that you have for your wife or your spouse or whoever, it should be that much greater for your savior. And that's what we talk about when we mean spirit and in truth. And it's both. And and I don't want to put too much on the emotion side because what can happen is we can make it all about emotion. It's spirit and it becomes all about chasing an emotional high and the song's got to be just right. It's got to be just this and I get so welled up and then I'm all And when that happens we 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 move more to the spirit side and what happens is then we're we're our worship is held captive by our emotions, which means it's all over the place. It's up and down, and it just depends on how you're doing that day. And that's why Jesus says it's worship in spirit and in truth. It's both. It's not just one or the other. The same is true if it's just truth and it's just doctrine and it's just what the word says and nothing else and it hasn't touched your heart. Then it's a very dry, and that's when it gets boring and it's dry and it's whatever. It's got to be both. And it needs to be in a balance so that, we're, so that when we worship in spirit and truth, it's our head and our heart. 
It's both working together. And it's rooted in rich biblical truth, but it's also rooted in your heart has been touched by what he's done for you. Now, one thing you may have heard in this passage before, and you say, well, spirit and truth, I always just thought that was Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit. And the context here, I think Jesus is talking about your inner self, your spirit, your soul, your heart level. But I do want to affirm, I want you to think about this. The, the reality is, the biblical reality is the only way that happens, the only way that your spirit, that you get to true worship is by the Holy Spirit coming and empowering you to do so, because otherwise you would never even get it. That's the only way it happens, because the Bible talks about how apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to see him, you're spiritually dead. We're dead. We're a mess. And it's only when he opens our eyes to see it that this can ever happen. So I want to affirm, even though Jesus, what he's saying here, pointing to is is more your inward soul and who you are. The only way that happens is through the Holy Spirit. And he actually says that in John chapter three. I think it's uh, John three, six. He says that which is born of the spirit, Holy Spirit is spirit. And what he's saying is the only way your spirit comes alive, that you can worship in spirit and truth is because the Holy Spirit has, has opened your eyes to do so. So I just want us to be clear that I'm not I'm not pushing aside the Holy Spirit or his role. I'm just trying to get you to the what Jesus is really saying in context here. So what we have is what it's not. What worship is not is it's not a formal outward compliance about where you are. Uh, you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth if you just come to church every week. That doesn't mean you're worshiping. If you just come out of duty and you sit here, that's not it. It's not just being in this place that, that leads us to... To true worship. But what it is, is being overwhelmed by what he's done for you in balance with what scripture says and the way it tells us and what his word says. And it's taking those two together. And that's where we get to the heart of true worship. So why does this matter? That's the last part. Why does it matter? Look at verses 23 and 24 and think about just think it's so easy to miss. These are Jesus's words. This is God himself in human form talking to us. This is God telling us what worship means. And he says, but the hour is coming and now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this goes all the way back to all of the Bible, all of human history. You are made to be in relationship with God. That's why he made us. To be in his immediate presence, to have a relationship with him. And when you do that, when you meet the living God and you know who he is, you can't help but worship. So in reality, you were made for worship. That's what you were made for. That's what he says. I'm seeking those to worship. That's what he's telling us, that God is seeking for people to worship him in this in the right way. Working towards this since the beginning. This is what God's been doing to bring us into that relationship. He's drawing true worshipers to himself. Now, how does that obviously if we're believers as part of the universal church, we're going to have true worship. If you've come into contact with him, you you see how those go together. We have to if we're going to be the true church of what he's called us to be, there has to be true worship. But there's also a byproduct of this that's so wonderful as part of what we talked about last week. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness, as First Peter says. When we have true worship, people see it. 
and it draws, God uses it to draw them to him. And he uses the byproduct of our worship as he draws more people to worship, which is what he was seeking to do. Right? That's why Jesus stops and talks to the Samaritan woman in the middle of nowhere. Someone he would never, because he's seeking true worshipers. That's why last week when we looked at First Peter, he calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then we looked at what Jesus says, a city set on a hill, a light to the world, because he's seeking to use his body, the body of Christ, to bring more true worshipers to himself. That's why it's important. That's why it's so important for us as the church. And there's a, there's a quote in your reflections this morning in your bulletin that you may have read it or you may not, but it's from Edmund Clowney. And it says, when we worship as we ought, that is when the nations listen. When we worship as we ought, that is when the nations listen. And that's how God draws. He uses that. It's his Holy Spirit, but he uses his body to draw true worshipers to him. So when we consider who we are as a church and what we are to do, this is at the very heart of it. It has to be. It has to be. We have to have this right because after all, this is what we were made for. Very literally, that's what we were made for. And all of creation is literally about this, about worshiping him and what he's done for us. So when we consider who we are as a church, that's pretty important. So we're going to look next week of what that looks like and how we cultivate that in the local body. And we'll hit on that next week. But let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you have called us out of the darkness, that you've let us see Uh, your beauty and your grace. Uh, We just confess this morning that so many times we don't have true worship, that we are distracted and we're thinking about the things that don't matter and the externals. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and move us, that you would uh, ignite our hearts, that we want to worship you and in spirit and in truth at all times that would be overwhelmed with what you've done for us, that uh, each time we get together and as we leave here, as we're in our cars with our families, with our children, that we would just seek opportunities to raise our voices in worship to you no matter where we are, that we'd be so overcome by what you've done for us that it would just be pervasive in every area of our lives. We pray that you would move and you would do that in this place. We thank you for what you've done for us. Let me pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.